You're listening to Nightlight. Hello and welcome to this special Easter edition of Nightlight. This is another show I recorded with David Kieran when he visited us here in Uganda last summer. But I've saved it until now because this message is perfect to listen to at Easter and especially on Good Friday because it is the story of the Lamb. But first, let's start with one of my favorite songs, also very relevant to the story of the Lamb. This is Christy Gibson. into the story of the Passover lamb. Here, back with us on Nightlight, is David Kiran from Hyderabad in India. I don't remember anyone before being a guest on the program two weeks in a row, but that's just the way the cookie has crumbled, this class being central to the Easter story. Well, David, the microphone's yours. Please share with us the story of the lamb. 
Oh, I'd be happy to. And I think honestly, this is this is probably the one that you know I feel I feel the most connected to. I feel mm-hmm. most deeply about this one. It's called the story of the Lamb, mm. or also uh, the story of salvation, and it helps provide us with a deeper understanding of what it was that Jesus did for us while He was there on the cross. Because it's a very, I'd say, muddied concept. To most people, especially because uh, most of the world we live in is in what we call the postmodern age, where, you know, we think that religion is a thing of the past. And we think that, you know, well, we needed God up to a certain point, but now mm-hmm. science has replaced him. And now we've, you know, moved on to other things. And I think the most disheartening part about that is that most people have just dismissed everything that you know Jesus has to offer them because they feel well it doesn't make sense to my life anymore and so there was a very interesting illustration given by a great man and he said that suppose you're walking in the jungle and while you're walking in the jungle you're attacked by a lion and the lion starts trying to grab you and while he's over while you're over there being attacked by the lion someone jumps in the way someone fights off the lion you escape with your life but that man is killed Mm. that night you go to the village and they're burying this man Mm. and they look at you and they say that man died for you and you say yes i know he did so what can i do what can i give how can i help because this man you know he has something to do with me but let's say you're walking through the jungle and you get attacked by a lion about 300 feet away someone falls out of a tree (laughs) and dies You fight the lion yourself. You escape with barely your life. That evening, you're going to a village. And in the village, they're burying the man that fell out of the tree. And they look at you and say, this man died for you. You're like, what? Don't give me that nonsense. No, he didn't. He fell out of a tree. I got away with my own life. I did this myself. And the problem is, most people, for them, Jesus dying 2,000 years ago was like the man falling out of the tree 300 feet away. They have no idea what it means for their life right now. You have no idea how does this apply to me today. And if you don't understand that, you can't appreciate it. You can't appreciate the great gift that God gave us through the death and resurrection of his only son, Jesus Christ. And so, I mean, I touched on it a bit in the previous one that I did on the prodigal son, but... I would like to really get to into it in depth and probably take us all on a journey together through the scriptures to see where it is that we you know we fell out of favor with God. The plan that God put into place for us to come back into that and how Jesus eventually fulfilled that plan and extended it to each one of us. So I hope that it's a journey that we will all take together. And I pray that as, you know, we're taking it together here in the studio and anyone who's listening and is taking it, that the Lord opens their minds and their heart to see this message through the eyes of the Spirit and that they can really truly, as the Bible says, rediscover the joy of their salvation through realizing what it costs. Because, you know, say, for example, I was teaching yesterday and I was explaining to someone the concept of receiving something free that's valuable. And I was telling them, if I give you my phone, you know, for you, it's free and it's something great. Oh, thanks. That's awesome. It costs you absolutely nothing, but you don't know what it costs me. For me, I had to save up for six months to buy this phone. Hmm. You know, a portion of my salary went towards it. And I really, really value this phone. This is a really, it's an amazing phone that, you know, I, I like so much and it's very valuable to me, but because I love you, I want to give it to you. However, when you receive it, and you don't know the value of it because you got it for free. There is a temptation to, you know, leave it behind or, you know, look for a better model or, you know, start complaining about some of the features on it that don't exactly work. And sometimes we've received our Christianity in that way. Hmm. You know, we don't know what it costs Jesus to give us, you know, what we did get. And so sometimes we can take it for granted. Sometimes we can say, oh, it's not enough. Well, we need this. We need that. Or, oh, serving the Lord has so many problems. Or, you know, there's so many requirements that, you know, Jesus has for following him. Because we don't realize the true value of it. And so, first of all, I would hope that we would see how it applies to us. And second, I hope that we really discover the value and are grateful for it. In order to understand the end, we got to understand the beginning. So if you have your Bibles... 
And Simon, I know you have a wonderful, wonderful voice. So if you can read for us, start at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. Nightlight. What a delight. And verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. All right. So God creates the heaven and the earth. And on this earth, he puts man. And God looks at everything, and God says, this is very good. Now, God made man with a purpose, and that purpose was incredible. We weren't just afterthoughts here on this earth. We were intelligently designed. We were put here for a purpose. And that's what separates the Bible narrative from any other Bible narrative that there is. I mean, if you get a chance to, I would like you to uh, look up. There's a very beautiful series of videos made by Andy Stanley. It's called The Bible for Grownups. And he talks about the narrative of the Bible, you know, as compared to other narratives that were put together. And he says that most of the historical narratives of creation written around the time that Moses put together the five books of the Torah, they all talked about the creation of man being an afterthought. You know, the Babylonian uh, version of it from the Chaldeans, which talked about, you know, the, the great war between the heavens, about two great rivals, and then one great rival tore the body of the other one open, and from the top half he made the sky, and from the bottom half he made the earth. And then after a while, you know, he started getting bored because no one was there to take care of him. And so he said, Let's, let us make a wild and savage creature, you know, with base intelligence, and let them be made to serve the will of the gods. And so man was created to look after these lazy and slothful gods. And this narrative was, um, was repeated in many of the versions, you know, both in the ones you found the Chaldeans and the ancient Egyptian records and the Enuma Elish, which is, you know, those documents are still, um, they're still preserved. All these stories are there. And into this narrative comes the Bible narrative, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God created man and put him on the earth, not just to serve him, not to be a servant to him, not to look after his thing, but to have dominion over this world, to rule this world, to have a purpose in this world, to love God and to experience the life that God created for him. Humanity wasn't an afterthought. It was the pinnacle of God's creation. This world and everything in it was created for a purpose. Mankind was created for a purpose. And if you go to uh, Psalms chapter 15, I think it's verse 26, it says the heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth was created and given to the children of men. And God wanted us to be here on this earth to take care of it, to take care of one another, and to enjoy everything that life had for us, and to live in communion with God fully. Because, as it says, that God, the Spirit of God used to come into the garden and would fellowship with man face to face. People could see God. It was He was there dwelling with Adam and Eve. So our souls were meant to always be in communion with our Lord. Mm. And with that communion... And in that wonderful place, that is the design that life had for us. And in the presence of the Most High, enjoying this world is where we had everything that our heart desires. You know, there's a reason why we long for love. There's a reason why we long for fairness. There's a reason why we long for equality. There's a reason why we long for justice. There's a reason why within our very heart of hearts, we believe all these things should be there, even though we do not find them in the world. You know, there's nothing in the world that makes you truly happy. You might be happy for a moment, but then it goes. There's nowhere in the world where you can truly find justice and equality because there's always something that's unfair or there's always someone to put someone down. It's not to be found in this world, but we sincerely believe it should be there. And there was a very interesting um, essay written by C.S. Lewis called Longing for Eden and where he said that the reason why we want all those things is because we had all those things in the Garden of Eden. Deep within every soul... We were made for something greater. Man was created to live forever. Man was created to live in fellowship with God. Man was created to know true love and true happiness and true joy and true peace and true communion with God. Man was created to experience everything, and that was there, and that was taken away because of wrong choices. 
And so to understand that completely, we can switch over to Genesis chapter 3. You're right. It's nightlight. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, He shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. So then Satan comes into the garden in the form of a snake, and he convinces Eve to eat from the one thing that God told them not to do. God said, anything is there to do. You all, you should enjoy it and everything, but there's one thing you shouldn't do, and that's eat from the fruit of this tree. Now, why did God place that tree there if he knew that they weren't supposed to eat from it? It was to give man a freedom of choice. Because without choice, love is not possible. Love is not possible in an environment where everything is controlled. It's only when you have the freedom to choose that you can really discover true love. And because God wanted man to experience the love that is possible and that is part of his nature. In order for that to be possible for man to experience it, he placed the choice before them. And he said, look, everything is yours, but don't eat from that one tree, because if you eat from that one tree, and the day you eat from it, you will surely die, because then evilness will come into the world. Sin will come into the world and into your soul. And so Satan goes there and try, convinces them, nah, that's what you should eat. And, and Eve is like, no, we shouldn't eat from that. And the devil says, well, of course that's not the case. God didn't say that. God doesn't want you to eat from it because he knows that if you eat it, you will become like God. You will know good and evil. Now, what he was saying was in a way true. What he was saying to them was that, yes, you would know good and evil. Your eyes would be open to sin. But what, what he didn't tell them, which what God had said, in the day they did it, their nature would be changed. Their spirit would be changed. There would be a separation between them and God because God is holy, God is perfect, and God cannot dwell in a place where evilness dwells. And up in this point, there was no, there was no evil, there was no wickedness. But as soon as Adam and Eve ate the fruit, that fallen state entered the world. The nature of man was changed. Suddenly, man's eyes were opened and corrupt thoughts started filling his heart and started filling his mind, which is why when God showed up the next day to have a conversation with him, God couldn't find him. He was hiding. And he said, why are you hiding? And Adam says, I am naked and I'm ashamed, so I'm hiding. What's entered his spirit? Fear, being ashamed. All these things that weren't in the nature of God, because now he's in the nature of sin. And so because of that, man fell. And because of that, the curse was pronounced on the world. It says in verse 17. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Okay, and so because of that, the world got broken. Creation got damaged. And that's the world we have right now. That's why we're tired. That's why we have sickness. That's why we have death. That's why we have all those things. We were not meant to have this, which going back to what C.S. Lewis said before, that is why, you know, righteously we are angry when people died because people weren't supposed to die. That's why naturally we get exhausted and we say, why are we tired? Because we were never supposed to be tired. None of this was supposed to happen in God's original creation, but because a man's own choice to listen to evil and to give way to, to his pride, because of that, the nature was changed, and all these problems entered into there. And to give you an illustration that will help you to understand it, it's like when a computer gets a virus. Mm. So you get a brand new computer, and this computer is great to be used. You know, it has all these wonderful things. You get on a wrong website, you get a virus. Now you can still use the computer, but the functions of the computer are starting to get corrupted. You're saving files, and they're disappearing. Out of nowhere, the computer suddenly shuts down and reboots. 
you're having so many difficulties using it. The program is still there by default, but because there is a virus in the system, you're unable to use it the way it's supposed to be used. It's a broken system. And when the Bible says that every man is born into that nature, every man is born in sin, what does he mean by that? Well, when I give you another illustration, is that if you buy a brand new pen drive, the best, fanciest pen drive, and you could have spent like, you know, hundreds of dollars on it, and this is like an amazing thing. The second you plug it into the infected computer, it's infected immediately. It doesn't matter how fancy or how brand new the pen drive is. Never been used before, straight out of the packaging. Why? Because the computer itself is corrupted, and so everything else that enters into it is corrupted, which is why, as the Bible says, our default nature is sin. And as it says in Romans 5, verse 12, it says, because by one man sin entered this world, so death passed on to every man because all men have sinned. Every man has got carried that. And so because of this, we are now separated from God because God is holy, God is just, and God cannot be in the presence of unjustness. The same way light and darkness cannot coexist. You put on the light, the darkness flees. The darkness cannot dwell in there. But now that there's darkness in the heart of man, there's darkness in his soul, there's darkness in his very nature, it's impossible to go on and bridge the gap. And this is not just Christianity speaking. This is not just the Bible speaking. Every major religion in this world tells us that we're screwed up. Every major religion in this world tells you that we've made some mistakes that separate us from God. And so we have to atone for our sins. We have to, you know, do good works and all these things. It's not just religion. Basic human nature always tells you that you're not enough because you're not doing good things always tells you that there is good and evil. Why is that in our basic default nature? Because that was the way we were supposed to be. And so it's not that the Bible has to tell us this. Our own nature tells us this. Everything in the world tells us this. Tells us that we were made for something bigger, but we lost it. And now we're trying to get it back. But no matter what we do, we always fall short. As the Bible says, all have sinned. In Romans 3.23, it says, all have sinned and come short the glory of God. So what does God do at this point? Does he say, well, oops, let the creation go. You know, that one failed. Let me build a new one. No, God sets a plan in place to redeem his creation. And he does it through slowly revealing it in a wonderful story that's woven through the Bible, which is what we call the story of the Lamb. I met a lamb by the road, it was dancing Here in my city, the answer for the asking A dove came down to sing it, well she sang They both laughed and sang and danced the same The lamb let out a cry, it was bleeding ground beneath me trembling It opened up and swallowed day and evening The dove sailed away, the moon was bleeding The dove sailed away, the moon was bleeding We all laughed and 
sang and danced the same. The love came down to sing, and well she sang. We all smiled and laughed and sang and danced the same. song the lamb the first version i heard of it was sung by mick fridley that was many years ago but that was a beautifully produced version of the song by philip johnson with music to calm and soothe your soul you're listening to nightlight yes you're with nightlight and we're with david karan who is sharing with us how the story of the lamb is interwoven throughout the Bible, starting with the fall of Adam, and now we are in Genesis chapter 22. Inspiring you to dig deeper into God's Word, you're listening to Nightlight. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. Okay, so a little bit of backstory on that. Abraham, when he was 70 years old, God called him out of his land and said, I have a promise and a covenant to make with you. And in this covenant, you know, you are going to be my chosen people and your descendants will be as the, as the sands of the sea and the stars in the heaven. And my promise will always be with you. He had to wait almost 30 years till he saw fulfillment of that promise. He was 100 years old when Isaac was finally born, who was his chosen son. So Isaac was the fulfillment of all of God's promises to him, the beginning of the seed that would continue it forward. And now God's coming to him and saying, go ahead and I want you to take your son and I want you to sacrifice him. Now you have to imagine rethink, reading this and understand that context that Abraham is feeling absolutely anguished here. But if you see a couple of verses later, Abraham is actually going to do it. Now, the question is, why would Abraham even bother doing it? What was Abraham thinking? You know, what was God even doing asking that? You know, wh what a monstrous, horrible thing to do. And what a callous person to follow through on it. Well, if you think like that, you're not understanding the ancient context. So... Let me give you the ancient context. And there's a very, very good book by a Harvard professor. He is, his name is John Levinson. Mm. And he wrote a book called The Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son. Mm. And in this book, he explains the, the historical context. In the historical context, he says, in the patriarchal families, this is how it worked. The firstborn son, everything belonged to him. The blessing belonged to him. The riches belonged to him. The wealth belonged to him. The power, the prestige belonged to him. Everything the family had belonged to him, including the mistakes of the family, the sins of the family, the problems of the family. He was accountable for it all. And so, in ancient Jewish times, from the time of Abraham onwards, they used to pay a redeeming price. And it says in the book of both in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers, it says, you will not delay to offer me the first of thy ripe fruits and of thy liquors and the firstborn of your sons you shall give me also for they are mine. And so people knew that their firstborn sons, the patriarchs of the family, would belong to the Lord because they owed God a debt because of their mistakes, because of their sins, because of the wrong things that they did, they owed God that debt. And so every year, they would pay a redeeming price. They would offer a redeeming sacrifice for the sake of the firstborn son, because the firstborn son belonged to God. And so God could claim him at any time. And so because of that, they would pay a redeeming price for him. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. And so what would, had God told Abraham, go into your tent, get Sarah, go take her up a mountain and offer her as a sacrifice. Abraham would have said, no, I rebuke that. That's not right. You know, that's not God speaking. But when God says, 
offer Isaac as a sacrifice. What is Abraham seeing? God is calling a debt. God is saying, Abraham, because of your mistakes and the mistakes of your family and the sins that you've committed, you owe me a debt. And you know that. And that debt is in your son. And I am claiming that debt now. And so even though Abraham was anguished, even though Abraham was hurt, Abraham still decided to go ahead and do it. You have to understand what's going through Abraham's head right now. Abraham's not thinking God is a horrible monster. You know, he, what he's thinking is, how can God be just and how can God be faithful at the same time? Because God is just to want this payment paid. But at the same time, this is the promise that God gave me. He's supposed to be true to his promises for my seed to continue on. So how can God be both just and merciful and faithful at the same time? And this is the struggle that's going on in his head as he's taking him up the mountain. And this this struggle culminates in verse 8 of chapter 22. When Isaac looks at him and says, Dad, we have the wood, we have the fire, we have the knife, but where's the lamb? And Abraham looks at his son and he says, God will provide for him. God will himself provide a lamb. And what's he saying? He says, son, I am just hoping against all hope that you're not the one who has to die for my sins. He says, I know that God is right to demand it. I know that we have done mistakes. I know that we have fallen short in all these ways. But I am just hoping against all hope that you're not the one who has to pay for it. And that's what he's saying to his son. And now when people when people usually hear this, they get kind of like all up in arms. And they're like, this is absolutely ridiculous. I don't believe in this. What sort of, what sort of a God is that that has to, you know, demand that there is a debt facing everybody? You know, what if I don't believe the Bible? What if I don't believe any religious books? You know, I just believe you should be a good moral person. You should just be judged on that. So then uh, for them, we say, okay, fine. You know, just take an invisible tape recorder, put it in your pocket. And then every time you say something that is a standard for yourself, oh, people should be true, people shouldn't lie, people should, you know, be fair, just record that. At the end of your life, if you played that back to yourself, you would still be a sinner based on your own standard because no one keeps their own standard. We tell people you shouldn't lie and they lie. We tell people they shouldn't cheat and we cheat. No one is innocent. We all make mistakes. Even people who, you know, the Buddhist monks who are supposed to be the most peaceful people of all, they also, you know, uh, we always say that if you want to, if you want to find, you know, a Buddhist person with impure thoughts, you know, give them something really spicy to eat and then put another monk in there to use the bathroom when he needs to go. What's going on in his head? <laughs> he's got angry thoughts going through his head and that already he's impure because you're not supposed to be thinking impure thoughts. So do you understand, Every, no matter what your standard is, you're failing it, no matter what it is. So then most people say, okay, fine, fine, fine. I understand that we fail and we make mistakes and that's fine. But come on, if God is all powerful, can't God just forgive? Why does there have to be a debt that's paid? Why does someone have to, I, I, I reject this concept of debt. You know, if God is all powerful, God can just forgive. If you believe that, you don't understand the concept of forgiveness at all. And I would wager to say that no one has really wronged you. Because if you've really been wronged before, you'll know there's only two ways of forgiveness. If someone really hurts you, there's only two ways to forgive. The first way is you make them suffer by not forgiving them. And every time you see them, you punish them in some way. You slander their reputation. You know, you, you do bad things back to them. And every time you do that, your anger starts becoming less and less because they're paying for their mistake. However, if you decide to forgive, what happens? Every time you see them and you get really angry, you have to swallow that pain. Every time you see them and you just want to get lash out at them, you don't. You take the humble road. And as the days go by, your anger becomes less and less because you are paying the debt. You are embracing that pain. You're not putting it on them. So there's no such thing as pain-free forgiveness. There's no such thing as debt-free forgiveness. Either they pay or you pay. Or put it in a bigger, broader perspective of society. When someone commits a crime and they're arrested, let's say, for example, someone was, was captured having you know, raped two young girls and murdered them. And then he comes to court and he's crying and weeping and he says, I'm sorry. 
and the judge says, well, he says he's sorry, let's forgive him, what would the outcry be? It'd be, that's horrible. There's no way you can do that because either he suffers or his or the family suffers because you're telling them their, their lives are worth nothing or the whole community suffers because he goes out scot-free and does it again. There is no such thing as, as debt-free forgiveness. There's always a debt, and in order for forgiveness to be made, someone has to pay that debt. You have to pay it, they have to pay it, or society pays it. It's got to be paid. And here in this point, Isaac looks like he is going to pay that debt. And so let's pick it up in, uh, in chapter 22, verse 9. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Okay, so, so God claims the debt, he comes to pay the debt, and he's about to sacrifice Isaac. And at that moment, God appears from heaven, and he says, don't, don't do it. You know, because I know that you know, that you love me more. And so God lets him off. But there is there's still some unanswered questions here. Who paid that debt then? We still don't have a logical conclusion in this train of thought to that. So we do know there is a debt and we do know that God has a right to claim that debt because chapter one with the story of Adam and Eve told us that there is a sin and this chapter told us that there is a debt and God can claim that. But who pays it? So to understand that, we got to go to chapter three of the story of the Lamb. And we find that in Exodus chapter 12. It's always bright when you're listening to Nightlight. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man, according to his eating, shall make you count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and he shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorposts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire his head with his legs and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover." For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So what happens here? Once again, God claims the life of the firstborn. He comes into Egypt, and remember at this time, uh, the Israelites are slaves of the Egyptian powers. And at this time, you know, God is doing many miracles and, you know, many plagues upon the Egyptians trying to get them free. And at this time, when they're about to leave, Moses hears from God saying that, okay, take the lamb, sacrifice it and then you know share it with your families and the blood go put it on the door of your houses because tonight the destroyer is coming through this powerful being is going to come through and it's going to slay the firstborn of every household except the households of those that have the blood upon it 
once again, God claims the life of the firstborn. Once again, he's saying, I'm sending the angel to bring in the debt, the debt for all the mistakes that you've made. And yet, he introduced something interesting here. There is a hope of salvation and to be saved from this destruction. And what is the hope? A lamb? Seriously? Snowflake? Fluffy? Your hope against the most powerful being in existence, the destroyer, is a lamb? But apparently it is. Now listen to this. This story shows us two principles. The first principle, we like to call the principle of spiritual legality. And the second principle is the principle of spiritual substitution. I'll explain the first one first. The, the principle of spiritual legality. He says, unless there is blood on the door, the firstborn in that house will die. And once the blood is on the door, don't you come out of that house. Because if you're out in the street, your firstborn will die. You've got to be in that house under the blood. Let me make a point here. The Israelites were good. The Egyptians were bad. The Israelites were the oppressed. The Egyptians were the oppressors. The Israelites were followers of God. The Egyptians were followers of idols. And yet, after all that, their firstborn sons could be claimed as well, unless there was blood on the door. Just them following God could not save them. Just them being good people could not save them. Just them, you know, being God's chosen could not save them. The only thing that could save them was the blood on the door. And it also goes to reason that if any of the Egyptians put the blood on the door, which we know some of them did, they also would have their firstborn spared. So that's that's the principle of uh, spiritual legality. You can't go before God and say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm good, I'm righteous, I'm perfect, I'm going to stand out my own works, because the Bible says they're unrighteous, no, not one. And Jesus himself said it in Matthew chapter 5. He's like, unless you're perfect as God is perfect, you can't stand in the day of judgment. There is nothing that works. So the only way these guys could survive was to get under the blood of the Lamb. And the second principle they bring out is this principle of substitution. In every house that night, and this is a bit of a graphic picture, and I apologize in advance, to, you know, for anyone who might be one of our sensitive viewers, but inside every household that day, there was something dead. There was either a dead lamb or a dead son in every household in Egypt that night. And in the household where the son was alive, he looked over at the table where there was a dead lamb, and he would have known in his heart that the only reason I'm standing here alive right now is because that thing is dead over there. The only reason why I still have life is because something else gave up its life for me. The only reason why I still have a future, the only reason why I still have hope is because something else died in my place. Something else took that punishment for me. And because of that, because I'm under the blood of that sacrifice, I am saved and I'm alive. And that's the story of Moses. Mm. But there is still some unanswered questions because although their lives were temporarily saved, they were not eternally saved. Although their sins were for temporarily forgiven, they weren't completely forgiven. Even though they were redeemed, they weren't fully redeemed. And so they would practice this every year. This feast became the Passover. And every year, the family would go up and they would offer the lamb and, at the temple and perform the sacrifice. And they did this for all those years because it was only a temporary staying of judgment. It was only a temporary substitution. It could not pay the entire debt. Let me explain it this way. The U.S. national debt is $17 trillion. $17 trillion. That's a number beyond anything that people can even imagine. Now, I can't go up to Donald Trump and say, hey, don't worry. I know you have $17 trillion of debt. Don't worry. All your fears are taken care of. Here's a check for $2,000. It's everything I own. Put it towards that. What's he going to do? He's going to laugh at me. Because what is $2,000 to $17 trillion? Even if I was a billionaire... Even if I had the wealth of Jeff Bezos, over $100 billion, that still doesn't even come close to $17 trillion. The only guy who can pay a $17 trillion debt 
is a guy with a bank account that's much larger than that. And get this, not just large enough to pay the $17 trillion, but because the debt increases every day, the, his bank account has to be large enough to cover not only the debt up till now, but any debt that could possibly follow that. And no one in this world can do it because no one has a bank account that big. For someone to pay the price for sins, what you have to realize is they have to be able to cover every single sin from Adam to that time and into the future, into eternity. Every person that has ever lived, every mistake that they could ever make has to be covered under this sacrifice. And no lamb could do that. No person could do that. And so the debt was not fully paid. But as we saw in chapter one, there is a debt. As we saw in chapter two, God can call in that debt and he has every right to. And we saw in chapter three, something else can pay that debt. So the question is, who pays that debt?
if I remember correctly, that was Jasper McCullum. I believe that's the artist's name. I don't have it listed anymore next to the song, but it's a terrific song. No price too high. Like a candle in the night, it's nightlight. Okay, back to our guest on the show, David Kiran, and his story of the lamb, which he's divided into four chapters. And just to recap, we saw in chapter one that there is a debt in chapter two that God can call in that debt and has every right to in chapter three that something else can pay that debt and so now the question is who pays that debt for that we need to see Matthew chapter 26 verse 26 and as they were eating Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said take eat this is my body and he took the cup and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. All right, so something very interesting is happening here. So Jesus stands up to do the Passover meal, and we just read it verbatim. But when he stood up at this point, there are two major shocks to the disciples. The first one is, When Jesus stands up to make the speech, he's taking the role of the patriarch who is offering the Passover. Now, when the patriarch would would offer the Passover, he would say something like this. He would take the bread and he would say, this is the bread of our affliction. This is the bread of our suffering. And he would tell the story about their time in Egypt. And then he would take the herbs and he says, these are the herbs of bitterness for the bitterness of our afflictions and things like that. And then he would take the wine and he would say that "This this is the wine of the suffering. What does Jesus do? Jesus takes the bread. He says, this is the bread of my affliction. This is my body, which is going to be broken for you. This wine is my blood. It's the New Testament in my blood that I'm going to shed for you. He's taking the elements of the Passover and he's internalizing them. He's making it about him. And the second major shock that comes out now is look what's on the table. According to the Passover feast, you had the bread, you had the wine, you had the herbs, you had the lamb. Jesus is having the Passover with his disciples. There's bread, there's wine, there's herbs. There's no lamb. Why is there no lamb on the table? Because the lamb is at the table. The lamb of God, who John the Baptist saw and said, Behold, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The only one who could do it because he was God himself. The only one whose righteousness was beyond any man of this world. The only one who was perfect as God is perfect. The only one who had the capacity to pay for every single debt that had been made up until that time and for every debt that could carry on into eternity because from everlasting to everlasting, his righteousness is always there. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was the only one. And he said, this is my body. This is my blood. It is my suffering. I am the lamb. And the next day, he died to pay that debt. And you want to know something interesting? He died at three o'clock in the afternoon. The same moment when they were sacrificing the Passover lambs. That same moment as thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs were having their throats slit and they were screaming out their last. Jesus himself was breathing out his last and saying, it is finished. And in that moment, it was finished. All sin was atoned for. Every mistake that man had ever been made had been paid. The beloved son had become the sacrificial lamb. And that is why when God told, when God told Abraham, stay your hand, Do not kill your son. What was he saying? He said, because one day, I'm going to go put the wood on my son. I'm going to lead my son up to a hill. And at the moment when he's about to die, I'm not going to stay my hand. But I'm going to let him die so that you will not be lost. So that no one else will have to die in their sins. So that no one else will be lost because Jesus himself paid for it. He 
was that sacrifice. He was that eternal sacrifice. He was the God who stepped out of heaven to live for you, to die for you, and to rise again for you so that you could always be with him for eternity. The Bible says, many as received him, he gave power to become sons of God to those who believe on his name. The Bible says that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And whosoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. Life eternal. We didn't deserve it. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And that came through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isaiah 53 says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Jesus was that sacrificial lamb. And now Paul ties it up. Romans chapter 5, verse 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we now have received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. And so, what he's saying, he says, even though in one person, if one person sin, it affected us all. One person's sacrifice can cover all. And that's what Jesus did. He was the lamb without spot or blemish. He was the holy, the perfect one, the chosen son of God, God in heaven to come down, to die, to pay that price so that we would never have to pay it. And Paul says here, he extends that to us as a free gift. He gives it to us and says, this is yours. It cost me a lot. It cost me my own life, but I'm giving it to you free. There's nothing you have to do. Just receive it. It's there. It's being put in front of you. Don't leave it. Just take it. And we have to remind ourselves of that. We have to remind ourselves of this sacrifice that Jesus made. Because if we don't, we can lose the value of it. We can forget the value of it. The Bible says, John says, behold the Lamb of God. What does it mean to behold? It means to think about it. It means to meditate on it. It means to focus on it and to think about what it means. Because if we don't constantly remind ourselves what Jesus did, salvation can lose its meaning for us because so many other things can come in our way. Let me tell you something. If you had a bill... If you came home and your neighbor said, oh, someone stopped off at your house with a bill and, and I just paid it for you, how do you respond? You don't know how to respond until you know what the bill was. Was it the postman with a post bill for the month? Was it something you ordered from Amazon? What was it? A couple dollars? What do you say? You shrug your shoulders. Thanks. I'll pay you back for it. But what if it was the tax department? who came to your house and found out there was a large backlog of tax that you hadn't been paying. And not only that, there was a backlog of tax on your ancestral property that hadn't been paid before. And so now that amount is beyond anything you can imagine. And you are going to go to jail 
until that amount is paid. And your neighbor says, oh yeah, well, I paid that. How do you respond? You fall on your knees. You wrap your arms around him. And you say, anything you want for the rest of your life, I will do it for you. Anything you want for the rest of your life, you just tell me. I will serve you. Because you have saved me. If we want to know how to respond to Christ, we need to remind ourselves of what it is that he did for us, what it is that he saved us from, which is why understanding this message is so, so, so important for us. Because only then can we really be happy in the Lord. Only then we can really worship the Lord. Only then we can truly adore him in the way that it is. Because if we don't know what our salvation costs, we can possibly just shrug our shoulders and say, okay, thank, I'll pay you back sometime. But once you realize that we can never pay him back, there's nothing that we can do, but it was given to us as a free gift, then we live lives of happiness. We live lives of gratefulness. We live lives of adoration to the Lord. Lord, what did you do? You were incredible. Thank you for your love, that love that just came out from heaven. And you gave it to me, not because of what I did, but because of you did. As Titus 3.5 says, it's not by our works of righteousness, what we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And he gave us that love by giving us his life. But there is more. Because the Lamb shows up one last time in Revelations chapter 5. And we don't even have to read this one. But if you have a chance, you can go look it on your own. But in Revelations chapter 5, the Lamb is back and he's on the throne. And at this time, all nations, all tongues, all languages are gathered together. And they are singing, Holy is the Lamb who was slain. Because of that, he receives power. And he has given us authority to rule and reign with him. Let me tell you, the Lamb is coming back. And he's coming to take us all to be with him one day. So we do not have just have him with us here on this life now. But we have him with us for eternity. As he said in John chapter 14, in my father's house are many mansions, and I'm going before you to prepare a place so that where I am, you will be also. Because of what Jesus did, we are forever welcome with him on earth, and at the end of our lives for the rest of eternity, we have a place to be with him in heaven because he gave his life for us, and he did it willingly to be our substitute. And that is the story of the Lamb. Yeah.
And that's Selah, bringing us to the end of this year's Nightlight Easter special. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks to David Kiran for the great class. Happy Easter to all of you listening. Stay safe and see you again soon for another international Nightlight show. God bless you.